0: We 're in uh, the last two verses of First Timothy, so First Timothy chapter six verses twenty and twenty one so i 've got an office in Missouri, place called independence it 's where it was the last stopping place. As they would make their wagon trail out to the west coast when people were migrating out there as the last place people could stop to buy supplies and all that. So I've got an office out there and it's, uh, houses our title plant. Our title plant are all these old records from properties and when we research stuff as a title company, we keep copies of all that stuff. And so it's a large building. Um, The whole first floor is covered with filing cabinets and then the basement is filled with filing cabinets and so we have people from other title companies and attorneys that will come in and they will um, pull out the microfiche or the microfilm and they'll run that through these microfilm readers. Now, considering that we're in a digital age now and so much stuff is just digitized, a lot of that old stuff, still we have to use um, these microfilm microfiche readers, but there's not a whole lot of demand for companies to make those things anymore. So out at our independence office, we have these really, really, really really old machines and they're all starting to kind of go bad so they approached me and they said hey we need to get another microfiche or a microfilm reader so you start looking around you realize nobody really makes them anymore and so then we find ourselves in this problem Well, we found this one company that still makes a smaller device and it kind of sits on top of a desk and you know what I'm talking about those microfilm readers in the libraries from years ago those were, grew up in the 80s you know you'd it's been you watch on the screen. It's all, it's all photographs, you know. Well, so there's one company that we found that still makes machines, but they're not like those big things. Or are a smaller unit, and it fits on a, a desk, and you connect it to a PC, and then the PC computer screen is what you view. But they're pretty expensive. So my boss up in Cleveland said, you know, we have some of these, and the company, we can send them back to the company, and they'll refurbish them, bring them up to date because even those machines that they make, some of them were seven, eight years old. So he said, and We can save a lot of money. So we reached out to the company and said, How much is it going to cost us? We've got a spare one that we're not using right now. How much will it cost to refurbish it and get it all kind of brought up to new standards? And the cost was about $5,000, which is about half of what it would cost if we could even find a new microfiche reader. So we're like, Fantastic. So the company sent us two boxes, and you take it apart into two pieces, and you pack it all up in a nice box that's specially made to ship these back and we package it all up and they sent us a shipping label for it and so I had my counterpart up in Cleveland do all that for me and he packaged it all up and he took it right over to the FedEx shipping facility didn't drop it off at like a FedEx kinko or didn't leave it in the office to have the guy come by he took it specifically to their warehouse a shipping center and they had one job to do and that was to get those two boxes to the company to be refurbished. And then that company would ship them for me out to Missouri, and we'd be good to go. So he takes it there, zap it with the scanner, give him a little printout, and we wait. And we wait. Kind of wait a little longer. So I called the company. I said, hey, when are you guys going to be done refurbishing it? And they said, we never received it. I mean, We never received it. We dropped it off at FedEx. Nope, I'm like, well, since they printed, printed off the shipping label and stuff, I said give me that information. They gave it to me. We go online. I could see that it made it to the shipping location, but then it just the trail ends there. So we reach out to FedEx. We don't know where it is. We're like, I mean, everything's tracked. You ought to be able to tell where it is in the ship or in the um, warehouse, but also it, when, it, when they put it on the truck, you know where it is on the truck. You know, when you drop it off, you tell me who you give it to. We mean, don't know where it's at. we like, we have no idea where it's at. So my counterpart up there goes to the shipping location and walks in there and says, I gave you these boxes. Uh-huh. You scanned the boxes. Uh-huh. Where are the boxes? We don't know. No record of them. They had one job to do. Now, this was a $5,000 piece of equipment. It's gone. So now we had to go and buy a brand new one instead because we have to get this device out there. But I thought about that as we, as we look at our passage this morning because we're going to look at Paul's discussion with Timothy here on how Timothy was, was entrusted with this sacred treasure. And I kind of think about that with, with FedEx. This wasn't just some $20 part I'm shipping across the country. This was $5,000 that we are now out because they're not going to cover it. You know, it was a, I mean, this, we had only one left in the whole entire company. It was a sacred treasure. They had one job to do. Uh, it's kind of like a snowblower I got years ago. I ordered the snowblower from Wisconsin after four snowstorms here. You couldn't buy them locally here, everybody he was out. So I got one out of a company in Wisconsin, or Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and they put it on the truck, shipped it, made it to the warehouse in Grove City and disappeared. They scanned it in. They never scanned it out. They had no idea where it went. Well, it's in somebody's garage. Probably, you know. One job to do, to guard this sacred treasure and make sure that it was delivered to where it was supposed to be delivered. In the final two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6, we see something similar. Paul calls on Timothy to guard this sacred treasure with which he had been entrusted. And as you might expect... What we learn from this this morning also applies to us. So we're going to approach it from that standpoint this morning. I'm going to break this down into three parts again. The first one I want us to see here is that we have been entrusted with and called to guard a sacred treasure. Look at uh, the two verses and then we'll go back and we'll start to digest these. Verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. So the first thing we see here is that Timothy had been entrusted with and called to guard a sacred treasure, and I would argue that that holds true for us as well. It'd be easy for us to just overlook these first two words here. Look at the first two words there again. He says, O Timothy. That word O is what's referred to grammatically as an emotional interjection. We actually use those in English. Whenever you've said something like, yay, or oh my gosh, or yikes, or any number of other things. You hurt your... Joe was mentioning this morning he's wearing a brace on his foot there, walking his dogs and some squirrel or something jumped out in front and smacked his toe. I'm sure that there might have been a simple, ouch! Well, that's an emotional interjection. Their words are phrases which explain or express sudden bursts of emotional emotion or convey things like anger or shock or concern. We all know those things. When Paul uses that here and he combines it with Timothy's name, that's a little bit unique. You know, in our conversations, you know, I find it funny sometimes how we talk to one another a certain way. And when we talk to God and we pray, we oftentimes do it in a very different way. Meaning, oftentimes when we pray, we repeat the Lord's name over and over, whoops, over and over and over. It's kind of like a habit, right? You know? Um, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm simply saying a lot of times. It's like, oh, Father, we pray that you do this. Thank you, Father. And and we repeat that name. But that's not normal conversation, is it? If I come up to you and begin to talk to you, if I talk to Dustin, hey, Dustin, how you feeling, Dustin? Did you have a good week, Dustin? Dustin, so how are the kids? Is your wife good, Dustin? That's a little bit awkward and unusual, isn't it? Well, we actually find the same thing when we write. When you write somebody a letter, you often start it, well, anybody write letters anymore? Uh, How about send an email? You send an email to somebody, you do what? You start it with, their name, typically. Okay? But do you repeat their name throughout? Not generally. And so, here's why this, I think, is important. Paul does two things here. One is he uses this emotional interjection, which means that this is a serious matter. It's an emotional matter to him. But he also repeats Timothy's name. Most of Paul's letters begin with using the individual's name, but he doesn't usually repeat that name throughout the letter. So when you add this emotional interjection, and you add somebody's name to it, what are you typically trying to imply? If you look at your your child who's just done something that is maybe um, dangerous, or maybe um, causes you great concern. Have you ever said, oh, Sydney, oh, Kimberly, have you ever done that? There's, there's a depth of emotion to that and concern and care and seriousness to it. And that's what we see here with Paul. He gets to the end of his letter. He's only done this in one other place. I think it's, um, he repeats Timothy's name in the very beginning where he refers to him as his child in the faith. Another very similar thing. But most of the time, Paul doesn't do that. He uses the name in the beginning and then that's the last you hear of it. But here, he gets to the end of his letter and he pours out this emotional um, phrase, Oh, Timothy, Why? Because of the grave nature of it, the concern, the emotion that he has when it comes to, about, to it comes to what he's about to charge Timothy with. And so I think it'd be easy for us just to overlook those two words, but they tell us a lot. Because they tell us Paul is serious about this. He's emotional about it. And he wants to convey that to Timothy. It becomes a plea of sorts. And again, much the same way we would do it with our own children. The charge... That he's going to lay out for Timothy comes in the very next phrase guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard what has been entrusted to you. That phrase, what has been entrusted to you, is a single Greek word. It refers to something that's been entrusted to somebody for safekeeping. It was used to refer to deposits or financial deposits back in the ancient Near East. But it was more often used in sort of a metaphorical sense, and it was used specifically to refer to entrusting somebody with your possessions. If you might, if you were to go on a trip somewhere, this word was used to describe the need for you to protect what was given to you while that individual is gone, and then return it to the individual when they come back. And so, that's what Paul is saying here, is that something has been entrusted to Timothy. He needed to protect it. He had to make sure that it would remain intact. The obvious question then is, what was Timothy entrusted with? What is it that Paul is calling on here? The simple answer is the truth of the gospel. Everything that Timothy has been taught. We, we've seen in this letter that he was taught the scriptures from a young age by his mother and his grandmother. Paul had continued to instruct and teach Timothy things. So he was entrusted with those things. Everything that we've seen written in this letter is what Paul is referring to. In addition to the other things that he had taught Timothy in regard to sound doctrine, sound teaching, the gospel. Now what's interesting is this idea of being entrusted with this stuff isn't new here. In fact, we're going to look at a handful of verses. Look at Galatians chapter, one, or chapter 2. We're going to bounce around a little bit here. You're going to see this theme throughout Paul's writings. Galatians chapter 2. Just listen to this. After my arrival, or he's talking about his conversion here, after he has converted. He hadn't gone up to Jerusalem for 14 years. So he's going to talk about that here to the Galatians. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, thought or um, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. He's talking there about how Paul was dogged by Jews who kept saying that you couldn't be saved as a Christian unless you were also circumcised, if you didn't celebrate all of the festivals of the Old Testament. And he's saying that they came in to sabotage the gospel. Paul says in verse 5, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me, meaning they didn't add to his gospel, because he was maintaining the gospel in its purest form. He wouldn't allow them to add all those additional things. But on the contrary, seeing that I had, and here it is, seeing as I had been entrusted, called to hold on to and to guard and to protect the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. So what does he say there? He says, I've been entrusted with this gospel. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Jump down to verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God, what? To be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. So Paul repeats here again that he had been entrusted with the gospel. Jump down into verse 18 there, same book, same chapter. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us, for who is our hope? Wait a minute, let me jump back here. I'm sorry, we're jumping to 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm sorry. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. He says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which, what? I have been entrusted. Look down to verse 18 in chapter 1. This command, what? I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you might fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a good conscience he says Timothy I've been entrusted with the gospel I am now entrusting you with the gospel how about 2nd Timothy chapter 1 verse 14 guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you that's why in my notes this morning I'm referring to this as a sacred treasure that we've been entrusted with comes right out of Paul's words here guard the treasure which has been entrusted to you. How about chapter 2, verse 2? The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You notice the pattern there? Paul says, I have been entrusted with these things. I am now entrusting you, Timothy, with these things. And oh, by the way, Timothy, now it's your job to entrust these things to other men. It's like... Uh, treasure that's being handed down from one to the next so what's our takeaway with this i said that these apply to us as well i believe that these words just don't apply to timothy but they apply to us as well that we have been entrusted with a sacred treasure and it's our job to protect it and what is that sacred treasure well it starts with the gospel obviously but we oftentimes When we think about the gospel, think of just the little salvation message, but it's more than that, because what we know with Timothy here is that Paul entrusted Timothy not just with the simple form of the gospel, but with sound doctrine, a sound understanding of all the scriptures. We are the repository as the church of God's truth. It's written here, and it's our job to protect it. Now, the Holy Spirit does that as well, but we're not excused from that. And we do that through preaching and teaching, But we've been entrusted with this sacred treasure. I had the opportunity to meet this week. Um, I shared last week that there's a gentleman in my office. Um, He's a paralegal, works with his dad. And um, we had went out to lunch on Wednesday. And had a great opportunity to talk with him and to share the gospel with him. He was raised in a Methodist home but hasn't been in church forever. Um, he's not saved. He has kind of a universalist view of things where all religions are, are the same. And we met for two hours. He was, and he wasn't anxious to get out of there. At one point I said, I should probably let you get back to work. He goes, hey, I'm clear until four. We kept talking. When we finished up our conversation, um, as we're walking out the door, we, we love to talk politics. He's very conservative. Um, so it's unusual sometimes to find somebody as conservative as he is that doesn't have some kind of a you know, Christian background or religious background of sorts. And um, so we would like to talk politics, and we chew the fat on that. And so we did that for a little bit, but we spent about half of our time talking about the gospel and some other things. When we left, he said, we'll have to do this again. I said, that'd be fantastic. We can chew the fat on some politics. And he goes, yeah, we can talk that religion stuff too, you know. So praise God for the opportunity to, to be able to, to talk and to share with him, but the time you know while we're there, and I'm sharing with him, I couldn't help but think to myself, he was raised in a church, but he doesn't know the truth. And so as I was sharing stuff with him, there were a number of times where he would say, "Man, I've never heard that before." And you know, we, we talked a little bit about, I, I asked him the question, I said, "You know, because of this universalist viewpoint of the world, um, I said, "So okay." If there's a God, which we agree there is, do you think that God would want us to know who he is? And he said, yeah, I think so. And I said, how do you suppose he would do that? And he said, well, look around us. I think we can probably see that in creation. So I said, you know what? That's what Paul, that's what the psalmist said in Psalm 19. And he goes, really? And so I quoted it to him. And he's like, huh, never heard that before. And I said, well, you know, what else? I said, do you think God would reveal himself in nature, or in Word as well. And he goes, Huh, I've never thought about it. What are you getting at? And I said, Well, look at the things that we see in history when God has done things. I said, The Bible's a history book. It lays out event after event after event after event of how God has worked with men in history. And I said, Do you think maybe God would do that too? And he said, You know, I never thought about that before. But I kept thinking to myself, You know, I've just got to keep taking him back to the scriptures, the truth of the scriptures. And I'm thinking to myself, I've been entrusted with that. He doesn't know it. But I've been entrusted with it, and the responsibility is that I might share that with him. And so we have been given this sacred treasure that we are expected to guard. Like again, the, the words that Paul uses here is this idea of there's a, this deposit made. It's almost as if God has said, I'm giving this truth to you. Protect it and guard it. You can give it back when you see me someday. So that's the first challenge, from our, or the first takeaway for us, I think, is that just like Timothy We've been given this sacred treasure and it's our job to guard and to trust it and unfortunately I don't think that many believers take that seriously. I think they think doctrine doesn't matter. You know, we'll just always agree to disagree which sometimes there's a, that's appropriate. And you know, I've shared with you recently some of the stuff I've been reading about NAR and, and some other things and um, it's interesting the state that the church is in. When you look at the research that Barna has done and others, very few Christians I think Barna and them say less than seven percent hold a truly biblical worldview. Which means they don't understand what's here. They wouldn't know false teaching if it came up and bit them in the bum. They don't they have no way to evaluate it. But yet we are called to protect it and to guard it as a sacred treasure. Let's move on. The next thing we learn in this short passage here is that as we guard and protect this, there will be challenges and dangers. So there will be challenges and dangers when guarding this sacred treasure. We find the challenge right here in the very next phrase. Notice he tells Timothy to guard what's been entrusted to you. And then another way to translate this would be by avoiding. That's a participle. It's an I-N-G word. And another way to translate that is by. By avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. So you see there, there's going to be a challenge and there's going to be a danger. We'll see in a little bit. So the challenge is first. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Three times in this letter so far, Paul has warned Timothy about false teaching. The first one comes at the very beginning. Turn to chapter 1 again. Chapter 1, verse 3. He starts off the letter with this way. This is a primary purpose that he left Timothy at Ephesus, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Paul says, Timothy, I left you there at Ephesus to keep these guys from teaching false things because what they're teaching doesn't further God's administration, God's redemptive plan. That's the first warning. The second warning came in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. The first served as a warning to false teachers. The second one serves as a warning to the church as a whole. But the Spirit explicitly says, chapter 4, verse 1, that in later times... Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of hypocrisy, of liars, seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected as if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. He tells them that in pointing these things out he'll be a good steward. So the second warning in this letter was to the church as a whole. The first was to the teachers. The second is the church as a whole. This third warning that we now see at the end of chapter 6 is Paul's personal warning to Timothy himself. He's warned the teachers, he's warned the church, and now it's, Timothy, be careful. Avoid worldly and empty chatter. Paul warned Timothy about the danger of Jewish myths and endless genealogies. It was a form of Old Testament legalism. He warned him about the influence of deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Here he summarizes all of that with just two phrases. Worldly chatter or worldly and empty chatter. The other one is opposing arguments. Let's look at the first one here. Other translations that you may have um, might use words or phrases like godless chatter or profane or irreverent chatter or speech. Essentially it refers to concepts, ideas, philosophies, teaching, that are all godless, empty, worthless, worldly. They all originate from the world. So what would fall into this category is ultimately anything that originates in the world instead of the Word of God when it comes to spiritual or life matters. Paul uses the same phrase in Second Timothy chapter 2. And he adds that it will actually lead to ungodliness and it will spread like gangrene. Remember what Jesus said about letting a little bit of leaven you know, you put just a little bit of yeast in bread and it's going to multiply. That's the way false teaching is. It spreads like cancer. It spreads like gangrene. Think about that word picture for a second. You know what gangrene is? You've got a nurse here. Isn't that where oxygen and blood are deprived to a part, part of the, the body? Isn't that pretty much... I got that right? Okay. And what happens to the flesh? dies. It dies. They've got to cut it out. That's the word picture Paul uses for worldly and empty chatter. Things that are we, we say are knowledge, but it's not. Notice he says, "...and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge." There was all kinds of stuff in Paul and Timothy's day that was peddled as knowledge, but it actually opposed the gospel and the word of God. False teaching wasn't just a problem at Ephesus. It was prevalent prevalent in Galatians. It was prevalent in the Colossian churches. In fact, turn to Colossians chapter 2 with me. Colossians chapter 2. Jump down to verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So he tells them to grow in the faith and the things that they had learned. Then he challenges them with this, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Paul highlights two sources of false truth there. One of them is the tradition of men. That's religious traditions. The second... Our elementary principles of the world, those are things you simply learn through observation. And Paul says, don't allow yourself to be taken captive by those things. Look down at verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a moon or a Sabbath day. Those are all things, Paul says, that are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize Delighting in self-abasement, that's treatment, that's like, um, physical things that you, you might do. In fact, uh, the most serious form, you know, they remember these, uh, monks that would rip themselves in the back and stuff, you know, they, they mistreat the body as a form of bringing about submission of the body, you know, um, severe fasting or, um, some of the, the, uh, Stoics would deny themselves any physical pleasure of any kind because it was, wrong you know they had these strict rules that was their religion he says and the worship of angels taking his stand on visions that he has seen we see that throughout the nar movement prophets and these men who i saw this i saw that i saw angels do this and that and i inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from god I began to think about this as I looked at this here. The challenge that we face when we guard this is the onslaught of false teaching. That's the challenge. It's worldly and empty chatter. It's things that are based on the world. It's often called knowledge. I'm going to rattle off a number of things here. and This is where we tread into those areas where maybe we get ourselves in trouble, but I'm going to do it anyway. I've mentioned to you, I've been reading quite a bit on the New Apostolic Reformation. I was telling Dustin this morning. There's this um, song called um, In Jesus' Name that became very popular not too long ago. It was on the top of the charts in Christian circles um, for 20 weeks. I'd never heard it before. Dustin said he thinks he, he might have heard it. Um, I learned about it from um, Candice Cameron Burr um, from Full House. She has a podcast. It just showed up on my, net, my, or on my uh, Facebook feed. And she was interviewing her. And it's kind of a neat story. Um, But I went and listened to the song. And, man, I was fascinated because it was dripping, just dripping with N-A-R theology. Um, Raising that, you know, that that you could pray Jesus' name on somebody and raise them from the dead. You could get breakthrough in their lives, which is a key term. Breakthrough, you're all looking for breakthrough, you know. And there was all this N-A-R theology literally just dripping out of the song. And I'm thinking, and it became number one. And as I'm listening to it, I'm like, yeah, the music is moving, the voice is beautiful, but the theology gave me the willies. And yet, again, number one for 20 weeks in the church. It tells you a little bit about our discernment. It's very deceptive. Um, so we've got stuff like what's happening with Christian music and how that's influencing the church. Um, we've got the whole LGBT stuff that's, you know, church after church after church now is, is compromising our teaching and our stands on that issue. We hear about Andy Stanley and his church and some other things, but it's broader than that. Um, I know Christians who have told me, you know what, I've changed my opinion on that. Love is love. You know? Um, That's infecting the church and its... Actually, growing. We have the whole social justice movement, which is this idea that we can somehow redeem or change culture. That's, that's our goal. We're supposed to bring about a change in the culture to bring Jesus back, and all he's waiting for is for us to finish the job and Christianize the world. No, that's not the way it works. You know, things are going from bad to worse. Jesus will fix it when he comes back. Now, it doesn't mean we don't preach the gospel, it doesn't mean that the gospel doesn't have some impact on culture and society. It does. But that's not our motive, that's not our goal, but yet that has infected the church. I once heard a missionary say, you know, he was a missionary from Africa, and he said, you know, I wish they would stop sending us people to dig wells. They're sending us all these missionaries who want to build all these wells. What we need are people to preach the gospel. We can build our own wells. Send us people, but... but, you know, his his take on so many of the Christian missionary organizations that were sending missionaries over there, they were all focused on things like hospital care and building wells and this and he said, But they, they're not coming over and preaching the gospel. Now if they had done both, that would have been one thing. But he said the building of the well and all these social issues had consumed them. And he's like, Just send us people that can preach the gospel, let us build our own wells, help us do it. But send people that preach the gospel. Think about the old earth evolution stuff. You know that those of us who believe in a young earth within evangelicals now are a minority? Those of us that interpret Genesis 1 through 11 in a literal, historical, chronological sense are a minority now in the Christian church, in the Christian evangelical church. Now that may shock some of you because most of us have kind of been a part of that, but that's the reality groups like BioLogos and others that have been heavily pushing theistic evolution and saying that you know what yeah Genesis 1-11 is true but it's true in a mythical sense it's not true in a historical sense that takes I mean that pulls out the basis and the underpinning for the gospel across the board if Jesus believed in a real Adam and Eve and Paul believed in a real Adam and Eve and then we say well that really wasn't a real Adam and Eve what are we saying about Paul and Jesus okay it's another area that's infecting the church now I agree with Ken Ham that you don't have to believe in the young earth to be saved okay but if that's what the scriptures teach we ought to accept it but unfortunately too many have trusted science or at least what's said to be science and then shift around and jerk around with the text Another one final area I'll just kind of mention here is this, this push for spiritual formation. Almost every university now has to have courses in spiritual formation to be accredited. And um, unfortunately, much of that spiritual formation, if you look at the authors that, that many of the professors and teachers are using to promote that, many of them are, are mystics. Many of them are right out of Eastern mysticism. Many of them are um, Catholic in, in, in background. Um, the One of the classes at the, the uh, spiritual formation classes at Grace Theological Seminary or at uh, Grace uh, College out of the twelve textbooks that were required reading, only two of them were from Christian authors. The other ten were from people who were unsaved who were Eastern mystics some some were Catholic, ten out of twelve and yet this is supposed to be a class on what the Bible teaches us about spiritual formation it, there's all these avenues, all these avenues that are designed by the enemy to attack us. And we're told not to fall prey to them. And I know it's hard sometimes because when I, when I share stuff like that, and you may go, but I like that author, I like that. My, my purpose is not to disparage anybody, but boy, we ought to have our radar up. To be real honest, even when I hear John MacArthur preach, who I agree with majority of the time, I still have my antenna up. I still want to look up what he's saying, because we have to be that careful, do we not? And so Paul challenges Timothy, the, the, the challenge here is that you personally have to avoid worldly and empty chatter. Those opposing arguments that are falsely called knowledge. Just because some teacher, just because some pastor says, I've got this new teaching for you, doesn't mean that it's right. Think about being a Berean. When Paul went and preached, the Bereans said, "All right, Paul, give us a moment here. Let us crack the books over here. We're going to weigh what you say against the word of God here. And if it's okay, we're good. If it's not, we'll give you the boot. And Paul praised the Bereans for that. We ought to be Bereans. We have to be Bereans. So that's the challenge that we're going to face. Now what about the danger? Paul gets to the danger in verse 21. The danger is this, which some have professed and have gone astray from the faith. Some have professed what? This false knowledge, this opposing arguments. Some have professed that and have gone astray from the faith. Do you remember the name Hymenaeus, Alexander, and Philetus? Those were guys that Paul's mentioned here. He called them false teachers here in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. Hymenaeus and Philetus had gone astray because they believed that the resurrection had already passed. So their teaching had undermined the faith, Paul says, of some in the church. As a result, Paul said, I had to hand them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that they would learn not to blaspheme. Apparently, Hymenaeus and Philetus had gotten caught up in this idea that somehow the resurrection had passed. Alexander was a coppersmith, at least as far as we know. Paul said that he was opposed to Paul's teaching. Paul said that the Lord would have to repay him for his evil deeds and he even warned Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 be careful with Alexander because he did me much harm those are just three that we know of as a result of not guarding the truth and falling prey to those false teachings all three of those men were in serious danger the first danger that they faced was brought their own salvation into question turn to First John chapter 2 and Dustin I heard him kind of smirk 1 John chapter 2, jump down to verse 19. This is a famous verse. John is talking about those who had left, had walked away, and he said, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, so that it would be shown that they are not of us when somebody goes off the rails theologically and they begin to teach things that don't quite line up with the scriptures it is appropriate for us to question where they're at spiritually I'm not saying we judge them it's not my call but you do have to question wait a minute if you're abandoning some of these core doctrines of theology the things that we see in the scriptures maybe you're not saved now again you have to be very careful because what's required for salvation we're saved by faith as a result of God's grace. There's not a theological test, aside from recognizing that Christ is who he said he is. You have to recognize, obviously, that you're a sinner. So there are certain things you must believe, because if you don't believe those things, you don't understand the gospel. And you have to understand the gospel to be saved. But there's not a theological litmus test. I would never look at somebody and say, you've got to believe in young earth to be saved. What I would say is, here's what you need to be saved, the gospel, And now that you're saved... It's important that you now start to examine the scriptures and trust what it says. That's where it comes into play. And so, when I think about what John says here, if they went out from us, they really weren't of us. So I would say that one of the dangers of accepting the false teaching and, and being pulled aside by this stuff is that it brings one's salvation into question. Now well, again, I'm not saying they're unsaved. I'm saying it should make us Pause. Paul elsewhere says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not talking about salvation from hell, but just make sure that you're in the faith. In fact, we're told somewhere else, make sure that you're in the faith. And how do we evaluate that by what we believe? The second danger is that they will ultimately face God's judgment. There is nothing but condemnation in the scriptures for false teachers. We saw that in Jesus' ministry. We see it with the way Paul speaks about Alexander and Hymenaeus and Philetus that they will ultimately face God's judgment and have to give account. You know, it's interesting when you look at the way that Jesus approached the Pharisees versus everybody else. He had a tremendous amount of compassion for people who have been led astray by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He wasn't always so gentle with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, was he? They were given an extremely important task to lead God's people. They didn't do that. They misled God's people. And Jesus didn't take kindly to it. So the two main dangers here when we fall prey to this stuff is it brings salvation into question. Especially when it's on core doctrines. I'm not talking about stuff that still isn't completely settled. There's some things that we still don't have all the pieces and parts to. We talked about this with our eschatology. You know, there are good men who disagree on the timing of the rapture. And there's reason for that. It's not quite as clear. God hasn't finished giving us everything we need for that. It'll probably likely happen when it happens, right? Uh, meaning we'll know more then. But there are some theological things that still all fit within orthodoxy and good men disagree on them, but the core doctrines are pretty pretty solid. And so especially when somebody is teaching something contrary to that, when Rob Bell brought up the idea of annihilationism and, you know, don't have to worry about hell because either everybody's all saved, they're just annihilated, there's nobody suffering in hell forever, that really goes... Contrary to what Jesus taught. He spent more time preaching on hell and condemnation than he did on heaven. Why? Because it's a serious matter. And for an individual like Bell to say, No, Jesus was wrong, brings into question his salvation, but it also makes him liable before God. He'll be judged for that. And so there's challenges and dangers as we guard this sacred treasure. We face those same challenges and dangers today, I think. I've mentioned a whole bunch of them here that we were challenged by. We are under constant assault by false teaching. Not just from the outside, but even from within our own churches. Back when Paul was dealing with the Ephesian elders, he said, right from within your own midst, people will rise up. Right from your own midst. You know, when we live in an age today where TV and radio, music, books, magazines, the internet, social media, Christian schools, colleges, universities, we have more avenues of teaching today than we ever have before. And it used to be, you went to church on Sunday, you heard the pastor preach. If you were wealthy enough, you might have a Bible at home. And maybe, if you were really rich, you might have some other writings. But generally, that was it. What do we have today? You can get anything you want anywhere. And, you know, you teach something from the pulpit, and somebody goes, I don't like that. I go look it up online. I find somebody else that agrees with me. And, That's what I accept. Because we can get it anywhere. So with the explosion of information, with the explosion of avenues through which we can now be taught within the Christian church, just explodes the amount of false teaching out there as well. Does it not? And so those are the dangers, those are the challenges that we face. Last thing, we must rely on God's grace when it comes to guarding this treasure. Look at the very last thing Paul says. Grace be with you. I love it when I learn new things. You know, I, I don't, uh, for a moment, I mean, I really—I look at this book and I think, this is a huge book. I think I've preached through, I mean, I've read it obviously numerous times, but I think I've preached through something like a third, maybe, maybe a half of it, which means I've got an awful lot more to go. Um, but because you see repeating themes over and over and over again you know you can get somewhat confident like i think i got a pretty good handle on the word of god um i don't say that boastfully or arrogantly i think it just comes with study and time right you know you many of you probably feel the same way but then you see something you're like i never saw that before and that is really cool well this is one of those times for me if you look at this um from a high level view overhead perspective there are two things that stand out in Paul's two letters to Timothy when it comes to guarding what's been entrusted to him there's a defensive one and there's an offensive one on the defensive side he warns Timothy that he needs to prevent the false teaching and and, and that as as doctrine he needs to also make sure that he doesn't fall prey to it now on the offensive side um, he's, he's told to teach sound doctrine he's told to pass it on to other men and so you have this offensive and defensive thing that takes place and so we need to do that here we need to Call out false teaching when we see it. Genuine false teaching, not just difference of, differences of opinion, but we should call that out. That's one job we have. Second job is we ought to be teaching the truth, right? So you have an offensive side and a defensive side. Defensive, prevent it. Offensive, teach the truth. That's the best antidote to false teaching, is to teach the truth. If you know the truth, you'll recognize false teaching. It's like that old adage about counterfeit bills. If you know what a real bill looks like, you'll be able to recognize every counterfeit bill. But if I only teach you about one counterfeit bill, you're not going to recognize other counterfeit bills necessarily, right? Teach the truth, best best antidote. So, you see that throughout this book. That's the purpose of it here. But, the thing that I learned through all of this, as I've been looking at this, even with that, we have to rely on God's grace to be able to do it. Check this out. Paul began his letter to Timothy... With this. To Timothy, my true child, in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. So he begins the letter with a blessing of grace. He then ends the letter, again, the very last verse, grace be to you. So grace serves as a bookend for the beginning of his letter and the end. What I learned, Paul did this in every single letter he wrote except the book of Romans. Follow me on this journey. Turn to 1 Corinthians. If this doesn't tell us about the importance of grace, not just in our salvation, but in our life day to day in the task that Jesus has given to us to do, this should. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's chapter 1. Jump all the way to the end. Chapter 16. Look at the last thing that Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, jump down to verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Book ends. Begin the letter with grace, ends the letter with grace. How about 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jump to the very last chapter of the book. Chapter 13. Jump to the end of it. Down into verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jump to chapter 6. The last chapter. Chapter 6. Go to the last verse. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Brethren, amen. Go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jump to the very end of the book. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24. Grace be with those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. I'm not going to keep going, but you know what? This is the same with Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. The only book that Paul does not bookend with grace is the book of Romans. And I believe the only reason he doesn't do that is because the book of Romans is his treatise on the gospel. It is like a theological treatise from seminary. Every other letter he wrote, he wrote to the church because of an issue or a concern or something he wanted to encourage them with. And in every one of those, he starts with a blessing of grace, but he ends with this benediction of grace. May grace be with you. Why? Because they're going to need to rely on God's grace to do everything that he spelled out in his letter to them. Timothy is going to need to rely on God's grace to finish the task to which he had been called. I'm just going to fire off a few more verses here. God's grace is unmerited or unearned favor towards us, and we all know that we need it to be saved, right? You have passages like Ephesians 2.5 that says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We see that throughout, Right? But we need grace on a day-to-day basis just to do what God has called us to do. I'm going to give you some other verses here. The apostles needed it, Acts chapter 4. Just listen, you can write this down. Apostles needed it, Acts chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Stephen needed it, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Paul needed it, First Corinthians 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but what? The grace of God within me. Paul says that in his ministry, I had to rely on God's grace to do what He called me to do. In fact, all of the spiritual gifts... All the spiritual gifts are given according to the grace given to us. And one last verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance of grace, get this, for every good deed. What would they need for every good deed? as they served Christ? Grace. I think sometimes we overlook that. I think we think of grace in terms of I was saved by grace, but we don't realize that every breath we take, every step we take, everything we do to minister in behalf of Christ, including protecting this treasure that He's given to us, is going to force us to have to rely on His grace. We cannot do it without His grace. I have to tell you, I think about that with my own ministry here. I've had the privilege of, of teaching and then preaching and, and shepherding for 30 some odd years, 35 years or so. And I wonder sometimes, God, why have I not fallen? Why have I not you know, found myself in a place like some of these other guys? And I, I can only attribute it to one thing. God's grace. I can give examples where I, where I believe he's protected me from something. Or where maybe there is uh, some some other teaching, some other things that... I didn't feel I was educated enough to, to even evaluate and somehow God worked it out where he brought people into my life or, or brought about circumstances to say, you need some protection. You know, I, I've been introduced to certain men who have shared their philosophy of ministry with me like Pastor Krenz, who from, from the very beginning told me the very first time I preached in this church, I don't care what you say. Get up there and tell me, thus saith the Lord. That set me on a a trajectory of how I would do my ministry. And I think that's saved me some heartache and some other things. And so when I look at my own life and ministry, I think if it had not been for the grace of God, I could not have done this. The fact that the job I have, I've been doing the same job for 27 years now, has allowed me to do tent making I am able at times to study during the day and not take time away from my family at night all by God's goodness and grace I didn't search that out I just needed a job God took care of it it's all been by his grace and so the last thing that Paul says here is grace be with you Timothy Peter even does this himself 1 Peter 1-2 he says may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure he says may grace be multiplied to you We need God's grace. So lest we become arrogant and proud that we're going to protect this treasure. No, it's by the grace of God that we're able to do that. Now it requires that we study. It requires that we pay attention. It requires that we keep our antennas up. We're we're going to be Bereans. But we've been given this sacred treasure. And we're to protect it, to guard it as the church, which means everybody here. I've shared with you before, the greatest protection I have as a pastor and a teacher, same thing for Dustin, is that you people know your book, too. Isn't that right? You hold us accountable. But everything has to be covered with God's grace. It's by His grace that we protect this sacred treasure. Amen?